Open the Word of God, please, to First Kings chapter 12. And, you know, Jenny had a wild wind trip to Houston and back, but my friends uh, David and Ami drove all the way from Houston just to come to church today. Oh, they did something yesterday, too. Uh, oh, they got married yesterday, too. That's right. There's something. First Kings chapter 12. You know, our Lord Jesus Christ warns us in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one or love the other. And you, know, you read that, you say, wow, this is pretty serious. And yet I think, now hold it a second, Dwayne, does that mean that I can't uh, love the Lord and uh, love my wife and love my family and love my church family and my community and my country and as a humble part-time professor at Cameron University, love Cameron University? Uh, no, he's not saying that. You know what? The Bible doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means by what it says in the context in which it says it. And uh, in ancient Semitic thought, when you wanted to stress a number one priority, an ultimate love and affection, you would refer to all other things as if they were hated. Uh, when Jesus says, no one, if you're a believer, put your name in the blank. David Demerson cannot serve two masters. Jesus is saying it's impossible for David Demerson or any believer to have more than one number one priority in their life at the same time. And if we claim to have two number one priorities at the same time, we're, we're kidding ourselves. Because we're either going to love one of those two top priorities and love much less, as if it were hatred, the other, or vice versa. You just can't love as the core of your life more than one thing at a time. Now that's a schematic diagram of the biblical Christian life. Anything less than that is not a walk, it's a limp. Where we put the Lordship of Christ in the center of our lives as those who have embraced Him through faith as Savior, now we live for the One who died for us, and as we think about our family and our work and our recreation and our church involvement, everything else, we start with Him at the core of our center. If we're less than that, we we are a double-minded person. But it's very easy for us, as we saw last week in Solomon's life, for us to put something else in the center. And it doesn't have to be some overt sinful uh, lust pattern. A lot of times people will put maybe their job, uh, Americans uh, worship their work, work at their uh, uh, play and, and uh, play at their worship, that famous say, saying from Oz Guinness. A lot of times what Christians do is they put something else in the middle and it's not necessarily a bad thing, and then they kind of think their connection with Christ happens on Sundays and or Wednesdays, or both. They kind of let church involvement be a substitute for putting Christ at the center of the pie chart. So, you know, last week, we emphasized that was exactly Solomon's problem. Solomon never renounced his faith in Yahweh, the God of his salvation, but he elevated other gods, among whom were Chemosh and Molech, uh, which required child sacrifice to appease. He elevated other gods to the same level 
He had multiple masters, multiple number one priorities. And when you do that, you've crossed the line. Uh, we said last week that very few Americans worship gods represented by idols, but quite often we put power or pleasure or popularity or possessions in the center of our pie chart, as it were, and relegate Jesus to a religious activity we do on Sundays and Wednesdays. But as we saw last week, and we'll reiterate this week, who or whatever is at the core of your life and your priorities is pragmatically our God. This week we're going to see the sad aftermath of the life of Solomon. He died at the end of chapter 11. We're looking at chapter 12. It'll take us two weeks to get through chapter 12. And we're going to see today that King Solomon's divided loyalty, and I probably should say King Solomon's divided loyalties, led directly to a divided kingdom. We're going to see the the outworking of all that. Claiming to have more than one number one priority is not going to work uh, for you. It's not going to fool God, even though sometimes we fool ourselves to believe we can do that. So we'll think about that today as we look at the first 24 verses of 1 Kings chapter 12. But as we uh, pray for uh, teachability, uh, let's pray for our troops, our peace officers, and our firefighters. And uh, Doug Strange, would you lead us in opening prayer back there? Thank you, Doug. Uh, Doug's a Navy veteran, by the way. Thank you for your service. Uh, let's do, instead of a top five list to kind of warm up your capacity for abstract thinking, uh, let's do a, a kind of a special tongue-in-cheek uh, reference to what I call CAD, which stands for Clergy Appreciation Day. Okay. Uh, here's a schematic of the ideal pastor. He has the strength of Solomon. He has uh, str- strength of Samson. Sorry. <laughs> he has the wisdom of Solomon, the courage of David, David Dudley, the patience of Job, I mean Job, the skill of Luke, the endurance of Moses, and the agility of Zacchaeus. <laughs> then you've got these two, and I think these guys must be Southern Baptists. Uh, they, they couldn't be TBFers. Uh, they are stranded on a desert island in the middle of the ocean, and the one guy says to the other, Fella, I'm afraid no one will ever find us. And the other guy says, Don't worry. I give $100,000 a year to my church. My pastor will find us. (laughs) So, yeah. And then this is an oldie but goldie. uh, Got two two fellows, look like penguins, but two men uh, walking down the road. And one guy says, I'm going to quit going to church. It does nothing for me. The sermons don't do me a bit of good. The music is empty fluff. And I don't think anyone would even miss me if I stopped. And the other guy says, but Dan, you're the pastor. you got to go. So, Okay, this morning uh, we're going to see that King Solomon's divided loyalties led directly to a divided kingdom. And we've been studying the life of Solomon for several months now. And because all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that believers might be mature, these individual narratives have spiritual power, have great spiritual benefit on their own. But at a macro level, the reason that Solomon's really, really, really important is because he's one of the uh, generations of human raw material God used to get Jesus here in his humanity. 
which is exactly why the New Testament Gospel of Matthew starts with a genealogy that most of us just scan, and I get that, but it's important to realize that the promises made to Abraham about a land seed and a blessing and through him and his line God was going to make the world savable was fulfilled over a period of 2,000 years when it didn't look like God was doing anything all the time, but he was doing big things in a big way, and Solomon's a part of that. Now you guys know that when you look not just at the genealogy that lines up and, and proves that Jesus qualifies to be the promised Old Testament Savior, when you look at other Old Testament prophecies about who the Savior would be, you find out real specifically who he's going to be, where he's going to be, what he's going to do, why he's going to do it, and when he's going to come. So in the Old Testament, folks, we're saved by faith in the promised Savior. We're saved by faith back at the provided Savior. And even more than that, when you look at what Old Testament prophecy does, it really paints a picture of one Messiah who's going to have two roles or two advents, you might say, kin. The Old Testament prophets anticipated the suffering Messiah who would be like the lamb, a sacrificial lamb, which is exactly how John the Baptist identified Jesus. That's the lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world. But also we're told we're not done yet. You know, we, we're living here somewhere. In fact, what, what's today? November 20th, 2016. But I prefer to think of it as the day after Ami and David's wedding. But here we are somewhere between the first and the second advent of Christ, and we've been built for something much better than the world we're living in now. We've been built for a person and a place, and that person's going to come back and receive us to himself or for believers, and ultimately he's going to end human history on God's term, no matter what ISIS or anybody thinks or does. Okay, So realize that Solomon is one link in God's purposes, but so is Shauna Mitchell. Or so is Meg Strange. This is our our time, not just to read church history, but to make some. And all of that's very important because ultimately on the cross, Christ died and paid for our moral debt that we owe before God that we couldn't even begin to pay back. And because Christ died for and paid for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins. And at the end of the atoning process, he says, it is finished, which is the translation of the Greek word telestai, which means paid in full. Everything needed to get Derek McPherson from Oklahoma to heaven, Christ has bought and paid for, and through faith in him, which is a rational act, but it's not meritorious. It's active, receptive trust, but to the one who does not work, but who believes in him who justifies the ungodly, that person's faith is reckoned as righteousness, for by grace... Unmerited favor, are you saved through faith? And not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Because Christ died for our sins, all who trust in him receive eternal life. Now, you know, our our uh, kind of logo for the church is a cross and an arrow. And that arrow is talking about the resurrection. Because as we often say, a dead Savior can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven. The resurrected one is the only one who can. He's the only one who can get you from Oklahoma to heaven. And you receive him and his gift exactly as a gift. It's not an exchange. It's not, let's make a deal. I'll give you this, God. You give me eternal life. Uh, that'd be a well of good deal. If anything you could give God, uh, you gave him and he gave you eternal life. But that's not the way it works. But to the one who does not work, but who believes in him who justifies the ungodly person. 
As Jesus says, the guy who says, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner, that's the guy who goes away justified, not the guy who lists all the wonderful things he's done for God. So that's that's why Solomon's so important. Let's look at the first 24 verses here, and, and next week, Lord willing, we'll finish the chapter. But it breaks down like this. We have, uh, the after the death of Solomon, we have the request of the new king, Solomon's son Rehoboam, of the northern tribes. You've got ten tribes to the north, two tribes to the south. Request of the northern tribes. Then reflection of Rehoboam. He thinks about what they've asked him to do. Then he gives a reply. And then we see a rending, a breaking down, a split, a uh, secession, as it were, of the northern tribes from the southern tribes. Uh, remember now, as we walk through the life of Solomon, you know, we saw some real great spiritual highs, especially in the aftermath of building the temple. But as we saw last week, his devotion and his number one priority changed from the God who saved him to other things, including the gods of his wives. And I think he wasn't so much worshiping the gods of his wives as much as trying to please his wives so they would love him in ways that pleased him. Uh, I want you to know, too, that you can read about Solomon in First Kings and also Second Chronicles. Those six books, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, work like this. Samuel and Kings tell one big story. Uh, it's almost kind of like, think of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and think of John. You know, the first three Gospels are called the Synoptics. They have the same basic outline. Uh, Samuel and Kings tell one big story from the standpoint of living after the Babylonians destroyed the temple. And it's kind of like, what's God doing with all this? How could God be working all this out? And those books explain why they're under discipline. First Chronicles is written right after the folks that were deported a generation later come back and build the temple. And then it's warning the people back in the land, don't do the same mistakes our forefathers did. So that first set of books is kind of like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then First Chronicles is kind of like the book of John, telling, telling the same story from a slightly different perspective. Okay, So that's where you're going to find uh, Solomon if you want to do further reading. We just decided, I thought it was simpler just to focus on the uh, First Kings uh, rendition of it, but you can also read about it in Second Chronicles. Okay. So we've seen his accomplishments, his apostasy last week, and now the aftermath of his life. Look at verses 1 through 4. Then Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. This is Solomon's son. Now it came about when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, heard about Solomon's death, that he was living in Egypt. For he was yet in Egypt where he had fled to get away from King Solomon, who was going to try to kill him. Then they sent and called him, that is the northern tribes called uh, Jeroboam, and Jeroboam as their favorite son and their spokesman, he had quite a way with words, and all the assembly of Israel, the northern tribes, came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, hey, we're going to anoint you king, but we got some issues we want to settle. Primarily, taxes and national conscription for government works, uh, is really was just too heavy. It was just too much. There's too much federal government involvement in our lives, basically what they're saying. Your father made our yoke hard. Now, therefore, now that he's passed the baton to you, lighten the hard service of your father. Decrease taxes. Put less of a stress on us serving the government and let us kind of do our own thing as under the Lord. Uh, so take away this hard service and his heavy yoke 
which He put on us, and we will serve you. Go back to verse 1, then. You might say after. Then after what? Go back to verse 42, previous chapter. Most of our Bible questions are answered in the verse before the verse after. Look at verse 42, chapter 11. Thus the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years, and Solomon slept with his fathers. To sleep is a euphemism for the death of a believer. The body looks like it's sleeping, but it's not. But the soul goes to be, in Solomon's case, an Old Testament believer to paradise, right? Upper compartment of Sheol. Uh, Solomon slept with his fathers, was buried in the city of his father David, and his son Rehoboam reigned in his place. Then Rehoboam, Solomon's son, went to Shechem. Shechem was a good place for kind of a national meeting without uh, airplanes or modern transportation because if that's a, a broad map of Solomon's kingdom and you expand the center part, uh, of course, uh, yeah, Rehoboam is uh, based in Jerusalem, but if you go from Dan to Beersheba, which is basically where most of the population lives, Shechem's kind of right in the middle. So they're going to have this national kind of inauguration uh, with some negotiation involved, uh, and so it it's, makes sense to have it there. And it's also some important things in Old Testament history had happened there earlier. Now it came about that when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of Solomon's death, he was living in Egypt. Why is he living in Egypt? Because he's the guy who received the prophecy. Uh, remember, the, the prophet took off his brand new cloak, tore it into 12 pieces, and said, these pieces represent the 12 tribes, and you're going to get 10 of them, and if you'll do the right thing, God will bless you. He's talking about, in the aftermath of Solomon's idolatry, the nation was going to split after Solomon died. So all those things are going on. And when Jeroboam uh, received that prophecy, apparently Solomon heard something about it, so he was trying to kill Jeroboam so it wouldn't happen. So Jeroboam's been in exile, political refugee in Egypt. But when Jeroboam finds out Solomon's dead, uh, he comes back to Israel, and he's from one of the northern tribes, so they see him as their favorite son, one of their national heroes. So they sent Jeroboam with the tw- ten tribes that were going to Shechem to interact with the new king. So they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel, the northern tribes, came and spoke to Rehoboam, Solomon's son, who's going to be inaugurated as the king now, saying, hey, we've got some issues here. We want you to lower taxes and put a little less pressure on our young men to have to serve the government because we want them to get married, have their own careers and stuff, and national service is a great thing. And personally, uh, I'm 63, so I think I'm too old to draft, although I did serve one year of Army ROTC, and we had no terrorism attack that entire year. But personally, I think it'd be a good thing if we want everybody to feel equity in the country at a big level, that everybody should serve two years of military or two years of some kind of civilian service. Uh, and, uh, you know, old men say stuff like that because they don't have to do it probably. But uh, if they want me to teach Greek or Hebrew, I try to help them, you know, on that. But I'm not sure they're going to need that. But uh, they're just saying, hey. Since you're the new guy, and they come fully intending to embrace him as the king, which is interesting. I wonder what uh, Jeroboam's thinking, because he's got that prophecy. He figures out it's going to work out somehow. We're going to split anyway. So he may not have the purest motives. But they just said, we've got some grievances here. And Solomon was too entrenched for us to bring those up. So we got issues. So please help us with that. So that's the request of the northern tribes. Now look at verses 5 through 11. We're going to see the reflection of Rehoboam as he responds to their request. Verse 5. Then he said to them, 
that is uh, Rehoboam, the, the proto-new king, depart for three days, then return to me, and we'll talk about it. And that's, Derek, that's probably the smartest thing he did, rather than just kind of off the cuff, because this is a big decision, right, Dwayne? Just give me three days to think about it, and really get some advice, and then I'll tell you what the deal's going to be. So King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon. These are the the older uh, VIPs, both politically and socially in the culture, that had been Solomon's uh, cabinet and, and inner circle uh, of wise advisors. Uh, so King Rehoboam consulted with them first, the elders who had served his father while he was still alive, saying, how do you counsel me to answer this people? I mean, they're saying, cut back on the taxes, cut back on the national service uh, requirement. So the senior staff of his father is consulted. Then they spoke to him, giving him some really good advice. If you will be a servant, you know, biblical leadership is always servant leadership. You don't ask people to do things you're not willing to do yourself. Uh, if you'll be a servant to this people today and will serve them, what's best for them? What's best for the nation? Not what's best for me? What's going to make me look good? Grant them their petition. And they got a, they got a point. And speak good words to them. Then they will be your servants forever. So, it would have been a whole different deal if he'd said, yeah, I think I'll do that. And God would have worked out the prophecy and everything, but uh, that's not what happens. Sometimes people ask for advice hoping you'll tell them what they want to do. They've already decided what they want to do. And then they come to people like me and James, they want advice. And we tell them what they really should do. And if it's not what they want to do, they think we're very bad, evil people. Uh and then usually it blows up later, and then they come back 20 years later and say, yeah, I should have done what you said. But I, that doesn't happen that very often to me. But I've done that so often with my wife. You know, I ask her what to do. She says, X. I said, no, I don't want to do that. And I said, yeah, you would, have been, you would have, you were right. You should have done it that way. So I've experienced, I've been on the receiving end of that. So anyway, he gets this set of advice he doesn't really want to hear. And that's the problem. It's called groupthink. You get a, you get a group of people that all think like you do, and you deal with problems that are multifaceted, and you don't consult Consider all the factors. You just consult and consider the stuff that your elite group thinks about, and you get totally out of touch. And the more decisions you make, the further you get away from reality and from the people you're working with. This can happen to CEOs. It can probably happen to parents. It can certainly happen to faculty at a university. It can happen to a country, which I think is one uh, way to analyze some things going on right now. But anyway, uh, he got the advice, but verse 8, but he forsook the council of the elders. They didn't tell him what he wanted to hear, which they had given him. And he consulted with the young men. Now, Rehoboam's 41, so he's not mega young, although when you get as old as I am, 41 seems pretty young. Okay, So I get that. But these are younger than the senior staff of Solomon, who'd reigned for 40 years. That's what that means. It, you know, age is, age is kind of uh, mind over matter. If you don't mind, it don't matter. But I mind, so it doesn't matter. So he, he forsook the wiser, older men's counsel, and he consulted with the young men, quote-unquote, relatively speaking. They're probably in their 30s and 40s, so they're not 12 or 14, who grew up with him and served him. So he said to them, what counsel do you give that we may answer this people who have spoken to me? Lighten the yoke which your father put on us. The young men, you know, the the young young guns, you know, the impetuous uh maybe a little reckless kind of thinkers who see they're going to ride Rehoboam's uh, coattails into power and uh, 
prosperity themselves, whether it includes the little people or not, doesn't really matter probably. The young man who grew up with him spoke to him saying, Thus you shall say to this people who spoke to you saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, now you make it lighter for us. But now you shall speak to them. My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. So that's all that. Huh? It's raining cats and dogs. Have you heard that expression? I mean, it's raining cats and dogs. We don't mean small mammals. We just mean it's raining really hard. It's just an idiom. This is, this is just saying that my weakest measures, my weakest policies will be stronger than my father's strongest policies. It's a hyperbole, but he's just saying, no, I'm not going to make it easier on you. I'm going to make it harder on you. You know, just sit down, shut up. I'm smarter than you are. I've got the power. I'm in control here. And uh, we're going to do what I want to do the way I want to do it. Not a good way to be a leader generally, especially when you're leading an all-volunteer army. Okay. James and I, you know, uh, a long time ago, since this is Clergy Appreciation Day, I'll, I'll tell you. Uh, it was Debbie. She in here? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the the Navy. This is twenty years ago. The Navy contacted me and they wanted to make me a, a, a chaplain, and they were going to give me the rank of commander, which is way up there. You got ensign, lieutenant, commander. They were going to let me be a commander, and I said, "What does that involve? Like push-ups, sit-ups?" They said, "No, two weeks of military courtesy, and you're in." And then I said, "Man, that's pretty awesome, man, because you know I have no power around here, and uh, <laughs> a little influence, maybe." And the guy, this guy was, um, he talked to somebody at Dallas Seminary. It was just kind of a fluky deal. But um, he said, he kind of laughed. He said, yeah, you'll have rank but no command. I said, oh, yeah, I could do that because that's what I have now. So, uh, <laughs> but, I mean, he's just, he's thinking, you know, I think they're saying, look, you got to be tough. And you know what? The flip side of this is, uh, we just read about this in our communication textbook last week. Uh if uh, in a business context, even a church context, but like in an academic context, the first week or so, I know uh, Ken is a, a classroom teacher, you know, you, you got to have, you, 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 want, you, you can always lighten on your requirements as a teacher over the course of a semester, but you can't really ratchet it up or people notice. And the example they used was cell phones in the class. And, you know, everybody's got one, and I bring mine up, and I Mickey with mine because I'm going to turn off the thing that makes it go off so I can look at my clock because you want me to know what time it is so I don't preach for five hours, okours okay? This is the only thing that keeps you, saves you from a five-hour sermon. That's why I do that. But, uh, you know, all of us put in our syllabus, turn off your devices before class starts, and we all say something. But uh, they use the analogy in the textbook of a teacher that was trying to be nice and trying to make friends with the students. So he said, as long as you, you know, can still listen to me, I don't care if you play with your phones and this and that. And it just talks about the classroom gets out of control. And then because of a bad experience, and he couldn't ratchet it, couldn't call it back. It's Pandora's box kind of thing. Then the same teacher the next semester came across real strict, you know, like a drill instructor about, you know, the cell phones and stuff. And kind of scared him the first week and he had no problem the rest of the semester. And toward the end of the semester where they were kind of watching some educational videos and stuff, last couple of weeks he said, oh, by the way, you know, if you want to access your phone while we're watching the movies, that's okay with me. So you can always do it that way or the other. So psychologically, maybe the younger guys are thinking, we're going to show them how tough we are, but you got to be tough at first. If you look like you're softy, if you look like you're easier and, and, and uh, more lenient than Solomon, they won't respect you. So this isn't necessarily totally malicious intent, but it's still not the wisest uh, advice, I don't believe. Okay, 
So let's look at Rehoboam's considered reply. What does he officially say back to the ten tribes? Verse 12. Then Jeroboam and all the people came back three days later to Rehoboam on the third day as the king had directed, saying, return to me on the third day. So we're going to interact and decide what the deal is. And the king answered the people harshly. And I think that's talking about tone, not just content. And that's what gets me. Man, my tone can be sarcastic and uh, unnecessarily uh, obnoxious. And uh, I'm working on it. And so I appreciate your inputs from the Holy Spirit to help me in that area because uh, my wife's been working on it for 43 years. And it's, uh, you think I'm bad now. You should have seen me 43 years ago. But, uh, yeah, I think the tone there is emphasizing that. That's a killer, no matter what you say. For he forsook the advice of the elders, the senior staff had worked for his dad, and he spoke to them according to the advice of the younger men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy. You're whining about that. But I'm going to add to your yoke. It was hard now. It's going to be harder. Harder with him, harder now. My father disciplined you with whips, but I'll discipline you with scorpions. What are we going to do? Put scorpions on their body? Throw them in a... What does it mean? It says it means what it means by what it says. Scorpions was a uh, was a kind of a nickname for a whip that had little pieces of metal and bone on the end of them, and kind of like a cat of nine tails, where you kind of get the whip and have strands that come out of it, and you put little pieces of hard stuff on the end of it, so it hurts. We see that in the Gospels, don't we? Before the crucifixion, so they'd already fine tuned that technology. So he says. You think my dad was tough? I'm going to be tougher. And he thinks he's he thinks he's doing the right thing here, I guess. Although his tone didn't help, and it's not going to be received well. Verse 14. And he spoke to them according to all the advice of the young men, saying, uh, "My dad made it tough. I'm going to make it tougher. My dad disciplined with you with whips, as it were, but I'm going to discipline you with whips with the bone and the metal chunks on the end of it." So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of events from the Lord. That he might, that the Lord might establish his word, the prophecy that he had spoken through Ahijah, the Shalonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. We saw that last week. I referred to that previously. Let me read what the, uh, the expositor's Bible commentator says about that. This turn of events was from the Lord. By this statement, the writer does not condone either the foolish acts of Rehoboam, or the revolutionary spirit of the northern tribes, including Jeroboam. But he reminds the reader, that's us as we read this, that all these things occurred to bring about the divinely announced punishment on the house of David for Solomon's apostasy and idolatry and breach of the covenant. In other words, God sovereignly used the foolishness of Rehoboam to fulfill the prophecy given to uh, Jeroboam, and to further his, that is God's overall plan. Now this is so important, folks. God is sovereign over everything. And he's the ultimate cause of everything, but he's not the morally responsible cause of evil. God is the source of everything, but he's not the morally responsible cause for evil. God is light, and there is in him no darkness at all. So we have a non-symmetrical relationship between the creator and the creation when it comes to good and evil. I like to use the example, you know, the Ford Motor Company is responsible for 
the ultimate cause, not responsible, is the ultimate cause for all the wrecks involving all Ford motor vehicles. Because if they don't build the vehicles, you don't have wrecks in Ford motor vehicles. But if somebody gets drunk or high and gets behind the wheel of a car and runs it into a telephone pole, or worse yet, runs into a, a minivan and kills a family, uh, the Ford Motor Company is the ultimate cause of the vehicle that caused the, the death, but it's the driver who's the morally responsible cause of the, of the sin and the horrible thing. So I, I think sometimes we just assume if God is responsible for all the good stuff, in the sim, same moral way, he's got the same relationship over here. That's not the way it works. Uh, you know, Jesus says, uh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to call you to myself like a mother hen calls chicks to herself, but you were not willing. They rejected him on their own. He didn't make them reject them. Uh, so often we're told that even bad things that happen are of the Lord in the ultimate sense. In this case, this rebellion was a, uh, in Rehoboam's foolish, uh, short-sighted response here. Uh, in whatever measure it was sinful and selfish for him to say this, God's not responsible for that, but ultimately his purpose includes both the evil and the good. And this is just temporary. It's only going to be for thousands of years until Jesus ends history in our terms and we end up in Revelation 21-22. Then we'll have the best of all possible worlds. This is not. This is not the best of all possible worlds now. One less abortion, one less rape, one less murder, you got a much better world. One less terminal cancer, you got a better world. This ain't the best of all possible worlds. I think it probably is the best of all possible worlds that involve people with real moral power to make choices, because God's that way. And he's going to get us to the best of all possible worlds. Once you get to Revelation 21, evil will have been permitted, evil will have been defeated, evil will have been forever quarantined, and those who wanted connection with God through and orchestrated by his grace will have it unbrokenly, with no hospitals, no cancer units, no child molesters, no wars, no terrorists, and you're going to have that forever. So God's going to get us there. But in the meanwhile, let's not blame God for evil, even though all things go back to him and his sovereign purposes, which is why you don't crack up when the kind of things that have been happening to a lot of us the last two weeks have been happening. You kind of hang in there. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. You're never going to have enough information to legitimately second-guess God, although it's very tempting to when you see friends die of ALS or something like that. But what do you do when you feel like you're at the end of your rope? You tie a knot in faith and you hold on, right? And uh, that's it. That's my story. I'm sticking to it. Now, the rending of the, la- uh, the once great nation. Under Solomon, they had their greatest uh, geopolitical extent, their greatest wealth and prosperity. It wasn't perfect. It was starting to have some issues at the end, but now we have two totally different nations that break out of this. When all Israel, and we're talking about the ten northern tribes that end up being called Israel. He's using that label in that sense here. Saw the king did not listen to them. The people delivered, uh, answered the king saying, what portion do we have in David? That Davidic line I showed you from Matthew. They're repudiating the Davidic dynasty. That's a big problem. That's not just a political problem. That's a soteriological problem. That's a salvation problem. Why? Where's the Messiah? Who's the Messiah going to come from? The line of David. They're punting away the line of David for short-term political gain. You think people would sell their souls for short-term political gain? 
It's kind of human history is what that's called. Yeah. What portion? No big deal. We can punt away David. We'll make, we'll make our own worship centers. We'll have two and make it more convenient they end up with. We'll have our own Messiah. We'll have our own plan of salvation. The Jehovah's Witnesses do that too. You know, it's not a good thing. Uh, we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Uh, Jesse was David's dad. We don't care about that. We don't need that. You kidding? We can, you know, do it yourself, you know. Salvation is a do-it-yourself project. Then it says, to your tents to prepare for battle, O Israel. Now look after your own house, David, as it were. So Israel departed to their tents, and they're preparing for uh, a war, civil war. It's kind of like Fort Sumter, you know, uh, in our history. But as for the sons of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah, Rehoboam reigned over them. In other words, there were some expats, as it were, members of the ten northern tribes that had previously moved to Judah, probably to be closer to Jerusalem and the temple. They continued to live under Rehoboam's uh, uh, authority in his, in his country. But for the most part, the vast majority of the ten tribes separate. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, and that's James. That's the way it's supposed to be pronounced according to the book we've got. You know, Adoram. That sounds like you know. I kind of adored uh, talking about Adoram. How about Glenn Spencer in that OSU defense yesterday? Huh? I love that. Oh. Um, so as far as the king in Jerusalem, Rehoboam and Adoram, who was over all the forced labor. Now, isn't that interesting? Uh, Rehoboam doesn't realize this is World War II here. Uh, he thinks they're going to get over it and come crawling back and want, to, want him to be their king. So to mediate this, he sends the guy in charge of the forced labor. Now, that was their big problem. We don't like the forced labor. We don't like our kids having to work for you for two years before they can actually have their own career. So sometimes uh, government uh, efficiency is an oxymoron, okay? So the king says, let's send the guy who represents the one thing they really hate to kind of convince them to come back and, and, and be part of our kingdom again. So that wasn't such a great deal, and especially not for uh, Adoram. Uh, and all Israel stoned him to death. They killed him when he came to kind of represent the national federal government from Jerusalem. And King Rehoboam made haste to mount his chariot to go talk to them as well, right? Now to flee back to, to safety, right? This way it always happens. So Israel had been in rebellion against the house of this. And it came about when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned that they sent and called him. This is Jeroboam now, not Rehoboam in Jerusalem, but the other guy who's going to have the ten uh, tribes under him. came about when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned uh, from Shechem. They sent and called him to the assembly, and they made him king over the new nation, Israel. we got Judah to the south, Israel to the, to the north. Now when Rehoboam had come to Jerusalem, this is Solomon's son, back to his capital city, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. Those are his two tribes. They gave him 180,000 uh, chosen men to be warriors. That's a big force, especially back then. And he's intending to go invade the new country like uh, the, the north, you know, uh, declared war against the south. I guess the south started it, but they wanted to bring the nation back into one piece. It's very much like the American Civil War in that sense. And his... Soldiers are going to fight against the house of Israel, the northern tribes, to restore the kingdom, to put it back together to Rehoboam, son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, and this is a non-writing but prophet, but somebody who's receiving direct information from God, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam in Jerusalem, son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people living there, and say, 
Thus says the Lord, you must not go up and fight against your relatives, the sons of Israel. The, the most, the hardest thing to believe about this passage is that Rehoboam actually took this advice because it's like the only time he does what God tells him to do. I think probably because he wasn't crazy about going to war, but he was right on the, on the point of pushing the button to start a nuclear war here. Don't go up against them. Uh, return every man to his house. Stand down. For this thing has come from me. You've got to accept this. This is my will. So they listened to the word of the Lord and returned and went their way according to the word of the Lord. Boom. Story stops there, but not really. We're going to continue next week with verses 25 through 33 and see kind of the rest of the story in the aftermath of this aborted war. But what we end up here is, if you look at our base map here with Shechem kind of in the middle, we end up with the kingdom of Judah, two tribes, basically Judah and Benjamin and some expats from the other tribes, and then the kingdom of Israel, which is much larger, although it doesn't last as long as it turns out, called the kingdom of Israel. So now we've got Judah and Israel. What was once one under Solomon becomes two, and we go on from there. Bottom line, kind of take this home. King Solomon's divided loyalties led directly to a divided kingdom. We saw it prophesied last week. We see it uh, come to pass this week. And talking about divided loyalties, we started there, didn't we? No man can have two, two number one priorities. You can't do that. Uh, anything less than a Christian life that's organized that way is a Christian limp. But at times, we probably all have done it. And for me as a pastor, I hate it when people substitute church involvement for being connected uh, at work with their family and every other area with the submission to the Lordship of Christ. That's not uh, Don't use the church as a substitute for Jesus. We work for Him and love Him, but we ain't Him. Okay? Here's some fast life lessons uh, from the song, from uh, Life Lessons of Solomon. Lessons from the life of Solomon. Yeah, that's it. Number one, God uses all kinds of flawed raw material to accomplish His purposes. We just looked at that genealogy at the beginning. If you look at that, you got Abraham, Jacob, Judah, Solomon, Abijah, Ahaz, Jeconiah, Manasseh. No self-respecting Baptist church in the world will let any of those people teach Sunday school. I mean, is that bad? Uh, we'd probably let a couple of them teach Sunday school, but we're, we've got more grace than everybody else, I guess, right? But, yeah, it's amazing that God can use all that stuff, which doesn't condone their selfishness and their sinfulness. It just means not, terminal cancer can't stop the purpose of God, uh, the worst sin perpetrated against you. And I've known, I've known people... Uh, who have had horrific home lives. I've known people who have been treated like dirt by their bosses, by their friends, and things like that. Uh, but God uses even all of that stuff, ultimately, to produce a beautiful mosaic of your life that you can use to glorify Him. So I'm not condoning the sin that you've received or the sin you've generated toward others. But God is so amazing, He can put all that together and make it actually work, even if we can't imagine how that's even possible. Okay? Second lesson, God's no less gracious to believers than to unbelievers. We really see that in the life of Solomon because after he pulls out of his nosedive, he ends up writing several books of the Bible. Uh, This goes back to the difference between what I call salvation forgiveness and Christian life forgiveness. I mean, in Psalm 103, we're told, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has removed our sin from him, from, from us. Okay, He didn't even see it. That talks about 
your salvation and forgiveness. If Christ died for all of your sins and you trust Christ to be your Savior, all the sins He died for are forgiven as far as your standing in heaven. And that's static, it's stable, it will never change. That's Psalm 103. But believers are told in a lot of places, like 1 John, if you say you have no sin nature and you can't sin anymore, you're lying. If you say you could sin, you just haven't committed sin anymore, you're lying. But if you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive you. And you're thinking, well, I thought Psalm 103 said He's already forgiven me everything. Well, He has at a legal, salvation, judicial level. Uh, but in your actual family fellowship with God, uh, as Jesus washes their feet, He says, if I don't wash your feet, we can't have fellowship. You know, as you walk around in the world, even though you've had the bath of salvation, you're going to need Jesus to process the sins that affect the quality of your fellowship with Him, and they all do. And so rather than rationalizing or redefining it, you just confess it and isolate it, right? And that's what you do. So that's important. Uh, you know, we we revel in testimonies where child molesters and drug addicts and uh, and murderers and everybody under the sun and terrorists come to, to Christ, you know, looking for Allah, finding Jesus kind of thing. And it's great. It's wonderful. You know, people uh, recognize their sin, trust Christ, have eternal life, have all their sins forgiven. So we revel in that, but sometimes we shoot our wounded in the church because somebody does something horrible. I mean, uh, what's her name? Uh, Beth Moore wrote a book several years ago when when uh, good people do really bad things. And when somebody famous like that writes a book like that, either she's done something really bad or somebody really close to her has done something really bad. Just so you'll know. I hope it wasn't her. I don't know. But... She basically made the case. God's not less gracious to children who goof up seriously than He is to unsaved folks at the front, which isn't a license to sin, but it's awfully good to know because we're all very fallible. Uh, another thing from the life of Solomon generally, truth plus error equals what, Blanche? Yeah. Uh, David, if you have a, if you, if you're thirsty, okay? You just mowed the yard for your mom. Got married yesterday, then he came home and mowed the grass. No, actually, that's what I did. I married you, then I went home and mowed my grass. You know, got to get full credit for that. Debbie, I made mow the grass. You know, she never notices stuff like that. Now she does. Uh, why do you go there, Brad? You're running late already. But anyway, uh, you mow the grass. You're really thirsty. You got a pitcher of water. Your beautiful wife has prepared you some ice water, but she puts just a couple of drops of strychnine in it. Not that you would ever do that. That's not water anymore. That's poison. You know, two steps and you're dead. So Solomon thought he could have two masters. He didn't repudiate God. He didn't stop believing in God. God had talked to him twice. He had no doubt about God. Built the temple. He had, he believed in the promises. He was regenerate. But he thought he could balance two number ones and you can't because you're going to slight one or the other and that's a dead end. So truth plus error equals error. And that's doctrinally and morally. And that's a trick. The way our culture goes down the toilet, everybody wants us to compromise uh, doctrines or morals so the world will like us more. And you know you can do that, but you no longer have Christianity. Just like you can take water and put poison in it, it's not water anymore, it's poison. It's watered down poison, but that poison is so strong it still kills you. So that's a big problem. And uh, that's one reason you should pray for your leaders, because we, we're trying to be gracious, but also with, you know, not compromise on our standards. And finally... We'll close with this. What we do now has ripple effects for ourselves and others. And certainly Solomon's dead, but kind of the seeds he sowed 
are taking root and growing now. And so we, uh, the things we do are important. You don't have to be world famous. You, you are the world to somebody. I mean, guess what? Shauna is the world to James, humanly speaking, right? Debbie's the world to me. Uh, uh, my church family is near and dear to my heart. You know, uh, what we do now affects them. Uh, even the stuff they don't see us do. Especially the stuff, the good stuff they don't see us do. You know, it just makes it so much easier for everybody. But they don't notice, but that's okay. It's great. You know, that's why you do it. Doing it for the Lord. But, uh, Everything we do, good, bad, or indifferent. The butterfly effect, you've heard of that? You know, there, there really is a butterfly effect spiritually. Everything we do affects, uh, a lot of things, has ripple effects now and forever. Okay. Let's, uh, close with a word of prayer. Father, help us to learn some lessons. We kind of, sh- uh, shotgun this message, but I pray that some of these teaching points or principles would be exactly what one or somebody else needed to hear this morning. And you would use that to glorify yourself. Help us to embrace your word as not just information, but as life-changing truth. Help us to put our names in the blank as we see principles, promises, and doctrines and morals that you want us to embrace and live out by the power of your spirit. And uh, we pray we'd be able to glorify you in the process and the product of that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.